I invite you this morning to come with me in your Bibles to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations, the third chapter. Today is the beginning of our series of sermons from the book of Jeremiah. I believe Lamentations is the place to start as we consider what God's Word says to us here. Jeremiah and Lamentations are together in many ways. In fact, the Lamentations, while we're not certain of authorship, may well have been Jeremiah and certainly were about the same era. Lamentations, the third chapter, beginning at verse 31. I still hear pages. I'll wait. 3.31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men, to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad comes? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies opened their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, it is hard for us to hear hard words. We certainly prefer comfort, kindness, flattery. But Lord, you speak to us truly. That includes speaking hard things sometimes. Now, Father, may we hear these words, both in terms of what was happening in that day, connected to our own pain as well, but also, Lord, in light of the cross, in light of Jesus. 
Help us navigate this well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're calling the series God's Painful Faithfulness. And it is going to be filled with elements of that pain. This morning as we look at Lamentations, I call this the hopeless, hopeful judgment of God. Because when the Lord acts in judgment, it can lead to hopelessness. And yet for us, there ought to be a hopefulness as well. The Bible is the story of the redemption of the people of God for the glory of God. The Old Testament speaks of the kingdom anticipated. The New Testament of the kingdom initiated. Now when we talk about the kingdom, sometimes that's not clear what it is we're actually saying. I found this a very simple definition, but I think it captures the idea of the kingdom. The kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's the kingdom. God's people in God's place under God's rule. The section of the Old Testament that we look at, known as the prophets, begins with five books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. They constitute what are typically called the major prophets, and the final 12 are called minor prophets. That's not because the Old Testament divides the prophets into major league and minor league, or that somehow Hosea and company is in the, are the farm club. Major and minor here have to do with the length, the extent of the books. Imagine with me now for a moment. America overrun, conquered by a foreign army. Washington, D.C. lies in ruins. The White House has been leveled. The treasures of the nation's capital have been taken. The Supreme Court, the Capitol building have been bulldozed. The national monuments have been reduced to rubble. The reflecting pool is filled with the bodies of our leaders. The devastation is nationwide. The building in which you now sit has been reduced to rubble. We've been starved into submission. We're watching our own neighbors reduced to barbarism. There are rumors floating around of cannibalism. We've seen our friends and neighbors kill one another in the frenzy and the stress. We've watched foreign soldiers assault, rape, and kill friends and family. We've watched as our children and grandchildren have been taken away from us to be educated in the conqueror's schools. Everything we've known is turned upside down. We're shattered. That, my friend, is where Lamentations begins. Written sometime between 586 and 560 B.C., it's a reflection and heart-rending cry of one who has watched the destruction of all that he knew and loved. Yes, the authorship is uncertain, but there is an ancient tradition that says Jeremiah wrote it from a quarry north of Jerusalem shortly after the destruction of the city. 
It may well have been Jeremiah. We honestly cannot say for sure. In the Hebrew Bible, it doesn't come after Jeremiah. It's part of the division called writings, which includes, besides Lamentations, Ruth, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. In the Talmud, it's called Kinoh, Lamentations. In the Septuagint, Thranoi, Lamentations. In Hebrew, it be, its title is Eka, How. It's a collection of five poems. Each chapter is a poem. The first four chapters are acrostic poems. Chapters 1 and 2 are each 22 verses long and each acrostic three lines long. Now, 22 letters, that's the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Okay? Chapter 4 is 22 verses as well, but each is only two lines long. Chapter 3 is 66 verses, 3 times 22. And each part, three verses long. Chapter 5 is 22 verses, but it's not an acrostic. The use of the acrostic is to convey this. Everything from A to Z has been said on the subject. In its simplest form, the structure has two lines with three accented syllables in the first line and two in the second. In Hebrew, it sounds like a dirge. It sounds like something you'd read for a funeral. Lamentations was likely read in the ruins of the temple in the early days. The Jews commemorated the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar on the seventh day of the fifth month of their calendar. It was transferred to the ninth day of the month in the second century A.D. after the Romans had destroyed the temple and the Bar Kokhba rebellion had been crushed. It's called that day Tisha B'Av. It has been read on that day since. When we read this, it's about the dying of Jerusalem and Jerusalem dead, the siege as well as the sack of the city. Tales of suffering, starvation, despair, till finally the walls are breached, the survivors deported, the goods looted, and the city torched. Now I know this is all said. Wonderful. What a fine way to start the day. My friends, this is the Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. Even the parts that pain us are profitable. Reminded that some years ago, as we looked at First and Second Samuel together, actually had a couple leave the church, <laughs> saying, "That's too dark. I can't take it. I need to come to church and walk away happy." Okay. I I don't know that where I read that the Lord said that all of us would be happy. Now, some of you, I know you're wondering, because you're thinking, all right, Jeremiah is 52 chapters long. 
How long are we going to be here? Till we're done. Lamentations points us to a time in Jeremiah's ministry or, or near or about that. Uh, the last good king had been Josiah. You read about him in Kings. During his reign is when Jeremiah's ministry begins. We know that Josiah cleanses the temple around 628, 627. Jeremiah is called around 627. And about 626 is when Babylon throws off the Assyrian oppressor and rises to become the next world power. Now we're going to fill in lots more information about Jeremiah as we go, but let's consider some overall principles we gain as we look at this. While we may not find ourselves standing on the ruins of a national, international disaster, virtually everyone here knows something of what it's like to suffer extraordinary emotional pain. Younger ones, maybe not so much, but if you've lived long enough, you have dealt with pain and sorrow and suffering, and you have wondered. The new song introduced today. Tim Challies, in his book, Seasons of Sorrow, records these words. In all the years I've been writing, I've never had to type words more difficult, more devastating than these. Yesterday, the Lord called my son to himself. My dear son, my sweet son, my kind son, my godly son, my only son. Yesterday, Eileen and I cried and cried until we could cry no more, until there were no tears left to cry. Then later in the evening, we looked each other in the eye and we said, we can do this. We don't want to do this, but we can do this. This sorrow, this grief, this devastation, because we don't have to do it in our own strength. We do it like Christians like a son and daughter of the Father who knows what it is to lose a son. Too readily, we forget God is just as faithful to His painful promises as to His comforting ones. And we should be faithful to those as well. What does lamentation show us? Now, some of you say, I'm, I'm, if I ask, I'm, in fact, I'm afraid to do the poll, so I shan't. Some of you have never read lamentations. Some of you have, but not lately. Some of you did it once and thought not doing that again. My encouragement would be for you this week to read these five chapters and reflect on these themes as you do so. First of all, we are called to respond faithfully to God's painful faithfulness. The pain of suffering is found throughout Lamentations. 
In the second chapter, at verse 11, we read these words, My eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughters of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. Or that same second chapter, beginning at the 16th verse, all your enemies are rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, we've swallowed her. All this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what He's promised. He's carried out His word, which He commanded long ago. He's thrown down without pity. He's made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Oh, the pain that is found here. Verse 18, Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. So you see, my friend, the pain of suffering in this case is the vindication of the Lord. The Lord had promised Israel. Now, let's not lose sight of what it is we're saying here. God entered into a relationship with His people. We find this reflected throughout the Old Testament, and it carries over even into the New. This concept of covenant, and I know for some of you, you just went through a thing on the covenants, and you you're either feel like you've got a handle on it, or you're absolutely exhausted, and you're not yet sure what you're doing. That's okay. Covenant is big. It takes in a lot of ground, and it's difficult to lay hold of all of it. But here's the short version Covenant is the terms under which the Lord relates to His people. And this is specifically about the covenant with Israel made at Sinai, which included both blessing and cursing. Blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. The kingdom has split years earlier. The northern kingdom, what came to be known as Israel, whose capital was Samaria, having split after Solomon's son, Rehoboam, took the throne and acted the fool, led to the division of the kingdom north to south. Southern kingdom, Judah, capital, Jerusalem. But you see, when the northern kingdom split, one of the first things the new king did there, Jeroboam, was to create new places to worship. It wouldn't do to have your citizens coming out of the northern kingdom Israel back to Jerusalem to hear uh, the word and to relate to those people and to go to that temple. So he created idolatrous worship in Israel. The consequence of that idolatry being so regular, so profound, so disastrous, was the northern kingdom falls sooner. Seven twenty-two. Gone. Southern kingdom still intact. But the southern kingdom had some godly leaders. Now, had its share of wicked as well. But you see, the covenant has been broken. And the Lord has taken action. The actions are those of the Lord showing that He will keep His promises. 
Lamentations is a theodicy. That's another big word. Theodicy merely means a defense of the Lord and of his ways. What you have, say, if you look in the book of Job, is a personal reaction to suffering. And that's a tough read, isn't it? Especially those first two chapters when you read, uh, thus Job doesn't accuse God foolishly. He retains his integrity. The Lord gives. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we read that and we cringe a bit, don't we? Job 1 and 2 is hard on a personal level. Lamentations is more corporate. It takes in the community. It's national as much as it is personal. For you see, the Lord was vindicated in what he did because of their sin. Look back in chapter 1 of Lamentations. Start at verse 8. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The prophets and priests were failures. Chapter 2 At verse 14, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Zion. In this, the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth. Chapter 4, verse 13, this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. Wickedness had triumphed in the city of Jerusalem and in the nation of Judah. The failures were immense. They had violated their relationship with the Lord over and over and over and over again. You see, they tried to find ways to compromise. There were attempts to take the religion of Judah and in some way meld it with the nations around them. Some kind of a syncretism where you put the two things together and and maybe you get something better. But it never resulted in better. It only resulted in worse. For you see, the gods of our own making are not gods at all. The gods of our own making are nothing more than our depravity expanded with power, expanded with strength, expanded to non-accountability. And gee, who'd have thought, when we make gods in our own image, it doesn't work out well. And the Lord will not tolerate a mongrel religion. Learning how to deal with God's painful promises. Even the recognition for those of us under the reign of Christ that 
Suffering is part of it. And it may not always make the most sense. See, this is the place I hope to show some distinctions for you. For what the writer of Lamentations is talking about is judgment without mercy. Destruction. That can never be true for the Christian. In his last years, the London Puritan pastor, William Googe's health gradually came worse. He used his suffering as opportunities. Now listen to this. He used his sufferings as opportunities to calm his soul. Now that's a strange phrase, isn't it? He used his sufferings as opportunities to calm his soul. I got to tell you, that's got to be one of the strangest sentences in all the English language. By reflecting on the Lord's grace, even amidst his most violent fevers or fits, Googe would respond. Now listen to what he said. Well, yet in all these, there's nothing of hell or of God's wrath. Did you hear that? In his pain, his suffering, his misery, there's nothing of hell, nothing of God's wrath. His sufferings were never so deep but that he could see the bottom of them and say, soul be silent. Soul, be patient. It is thy God and Father who thus orders thy condition. Thou art his clay, and he may tread and trample on thee as he pleases. You have deserved much worse. It is enough that you're kept out of hell. Though your pain be grievous, yet it is tolerable. Thy God affords some intermissions. He will turn it to your good and at length put an end to all, none of which things can be expected in hell. Oh, my friends, think of it in these terms. For us, as we receive suffering, it is always to our good, even if we don't understand it. And it is never for our damnation and destruction as Christians. It's not that it doesn't happen. But the purposes are for our good. You see, the Lord was vindicated in what He did to Jerusalem because of their sinfulness, but also because of His faithfulness. The Lord had promised blessings for faithfulness, cursing for unfaithfulness. He now shows the righteousness of His own character. Chapter 1, verse 14, my transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They're set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there's none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. Now listen to what he says in the 18th verse. The Lord is in the right. May I give you an aside? 
I hear all this talk about being on the right side of history today. Let, let me explain something to you. If you're not on the Lord's side, you're not on the right side. And the Lord is the one who's going to make the judgments about history and our actions. The Lord is in the right, for I've rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women, my young men have gone into captivity. Chapter 2, verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He's thrown down without pity. He's made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. He, we even see in Lamentations this humble pleading for relief. Chapter 5, verse 1. Oh, remember us, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Suffering leads to humility. Suffering lets you know in a most profound way that you are made of clay. You know, often I have people ask me, are we facing the judgment of God today? Or is the judgment of God coming? Yes. And yes. One only need read in the book of Jeremiah that the prophecies aren't just about the people of God, they're also about the nations around the people of God. America doesn't get a pass. And please hear me when I say this. Not in the same terms because God no longer makes covenants with nations. Covenants with nations ended when the Mosaic Covenant was fulfilled. He makes covenant with people from all nations who believe in the Son. And so as we observe and we watch the culture around us cratering, we are, are concerned because we see this, and folks, we ought to be concerned. I, I, I've got, I'll admit it, okay, I... I am stunned when I look at where our nation has gone in the last 20 years. I am absolutely stunned. The rapidity with which we have embraced immorality, perversion, a denial not only of God, and not only a denial of obeying God, but even a denial of the way God made us. It is absolute madness. How long will the Lord let a nation survive that thinks it is morally upright to mutilate children? Kid can't get a tattoo, but he can get life-altering surgery. I don't go, well, that's hateful. No, my friends, that's love. This is wicked beyond comprehension. And the church far too often is silent. Mm. 
I think we're so afraid we're going to be canceled, we're afraid to open our mouths. Well, bring on the cancellation. I wasn't looking for your approval to begin with. My friends, as we watch this happen, as we go through Jeremiah, we've got to lay hold of something. It is quite possible that we as the church may thrive and do immeasurably well while the nation itself absolutely falls into ruin. And the Lord may have purpose in centering Christianity in other regions of the world for His glory and for the kingdom. That may well happen. But we ought to believe God's faithfulness both in terms of promise as well as in terms of destruction. Now I know you said, wow, preacher, thanks. That's, that's good. Uh, now I'm going to go home and try to enjoy my lunch. Let me stop for a moment. Let me show you something, even in Lamentations. Chapter 3, verse 19. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me, but this I call to mind, and therefore, now note this, therefore I have hope. That's a good one to underline the Lamentations. That doesn't show up much. Therefore I have hope. What's the hope? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end they are new every morning great is your faith you know somebody ought to make a song out of that great is your faithfulness the Lord is my portion says my soul therefore I will hope in him the Lord is good to those who wait for him to the soul who seeks him it's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord it's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth on the dust. There may yet be, be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults for the Lord will not cast off forever. The author of Lamentations believed that God did still have a comforting promise to fulfill. And that was to restore Israel in some fashion. Now we know that happens, right? You read the history, we find out that, uh, you read in the book of Daniel, Daniel's reading his Bible, who to thunk? Daniel's got his Bible and he reads in the book of Jeremiah, this is going to last this many years. Well, it's, he sits down, starts doing the calculation. Well, we came here and that's there. It's time. And then you read his prayer in Daniel chapter 9, a prayer of confession and repentance and hopefulness because the Lord does bring the people back. But oh my friend, he brings them back with this in mind, that in just about 400 years, the one son who can keep the covenant will come. First son, Adam, Adam, breaks the covenant, disaster. 
Noah breaks the covenant disaster. Abram tries to follow the Lord, but even Abraham has problems. Isaac, not much better. Jacob. Now there's a story that will get your attention, right? The 12 tribes, Moses, Judges, kings, prophets. Over and over again, the one who's supposed to fulfill the covenant fails to fulfill their side of the covenant over and over and over again. The hope then is for one who will fulfill the covenant. I read right in the center of Lamentations, hope. And virtually in the center of Jeremiah, I read hope. I will make a new covenant. One they, I'm paraphrasing, but you read it, see if I'm right. One they can't mess up. Because I'm going to fix them when they enter the covenant. I'm not going to make a covenant before they're mine. I'm going to make sure they're mine, and then we're going to have a covenant. And that covenant shall change them inwardly. And they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. So my friends, even as we look at the sorrow of this judgment, the glory of knowing that the new covenant has come in Christ ought to give us great comfort. You see, my friends, when we see that, then the sufferings we have in this time take on a whole different tenor. It's not that we can't go along and pray some of the prayers and lamentations. We can. There are things that bring us grief and sorrow, right? I don't know. Any of you ever grieved? You ever wept your heart out? Cried until there were no tears left? You ever been miserable? Hmm. That's not sub-Christian. Let me conclude with this. Mark Dever relates a story from John Piper in his book, Future Grace, the story of Evelyn Brand. Evelyn grew up in a well-to-do English family. She studied at the London Conservatory of Art, and she dressed in the finest silks. But when she and her husband left to minister, go as missionaries to the Kolimala region of India, ten years later her husband died at the age of 44. She came home a broken woman beaten down by pain and grief. But after a year's recuperation, and listen to this, against all advice, she returned to India. Her soul was restored. She poured her life into the hill people, nursing the sick, teaching farming, lecturing about guinea worms, doing whatever it was that came to hand that needed doing, rearing orphans, clearing jungle land, pulling teeth, 
establishing schools, preaching the gospel. She lived in a portable hut, eight feet square, that could be taken down, moved, and erected again. At age 67, she fell and broke her hip. Her son Paul had just come to India as a surgeon. He encouraged her to retire. She'd already suffered a broken arm, several cracked vertebrae, and recurrent malaria. Paul managed as many arguments as he could think to persuade his 67-year-old mother that was a good investment in ministry. She'd done a lot. Now it's time to retire. Her response, Paul, you know these mountains. If I leave, who will help the village people? Who will treat their wounds and pull their teeth and teach them about Jesus? When someone comes to take my place, then and only then I'll retire. In any case, why preserve this old body if it's not going to be used where God needs me? That was her final answer, so she worked on. At age 95, she died. Following her instructions, villagers buried her in a simple cotton sheet so her body would return to the soil and nourish new life. <laughs> her spirit, too, lives on in a church, a clinic, several schools, and the faces of thousands of villagers across the five mountain ranges of South India. Her son commented that with wrinkles as deep and extensive as any I've ever seen on a human face, she was a beautiful woman, but it was not the beauty of the silk and the heirlooms of London High Society. For the last 20 years of her life, she refused to have a mirror in her house. She was consumed with ministry, not mirrors. A co-worker once remarked that Granny Brand was more alive than any person he'd ever met. By giving away life, she found all right, you say, okay, you've gone from lamentations and that kind of sorrow. Now you're talking about missionary work. How do you do that? It's not hard. My friends, if you take nothing else from this as we do lamentations and now move on to Jeremiah, suffering has purpose. It is not without purpose. Suffering for believers has purpose even when it doesn't look like it has purpose. And that your father has in mind for you good. And the promise is this. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I think about it. And as I think about it, I can't see it. I'm just telling the truth, I can't see it. I stand here and I read the words I can't see. I, here's what I can see. I see Him. And I trust Him. Your pastor's never going to be the one to have a vision of heaven and come back and tell you about it and write books, okay? God have mercy. But I do see him. And I trust him. And whether I grasp it or not, whatever I face in this life will one day be treated and conceived of 
as nothing in comparison. I can't quite get my arms around that yet. Other than to say, he's true, and I believe. Oh, Christian, let us embrace even our suffering with hope. Hope not in us, but hope in him. And that his promises are true. Our Father, teach us that it's okay to weep. It's okay to lament. It's more than acceptable to be sorrowful. Teach us, Father, that as we weep out our pain and cry out to you, you do not reject us. Father, may we learn from the judgment of your people in the Old Testament the marvels of the grace of what you pour out on us. May we learn from your judgment of the nations in history that our own time, our own nation and nations around us have no guarantee beyond your mercy. And oh Lord, we would still pray for mercy. But Lord, if the path continues this direction and judgment comes, grant us faithfulness even in the place of sorrow and suffering and death. May we say that you are good and you are right and you are merciful. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.